Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. This is your host, Neil. In the last two episodes, Pace Davis spoke to audiences about living through his intense depression and about his experiences of joining the popular resistance in Palestine. Sometime after these talks, I sat down with Pace for a one-on-one -on -one conversation about many different things, which I present to you in this and the following episodes. In this first part of our conversation, Pace tells us about life starting from childhood until college. An otherwise happy childhood in Austin, Texas, was clouded by his ill-understood disease of congenital myopathy and due to his father going to jail for six years for monetary fraud. Because of these reasons, Pace grew up being bullied in school and became fixated with the idea of justice and to empower himself intellectually. In high school, Pace finally shed his social isolation and found a family of other misfit children with absent parents. He eventually started university with engineering but soon switched to history, took Arabic, and started learning and thinking about politics and social struggles. If you enjoy listening to this conversation, consider supporting me by donating Dai or Ether to abhranil.eth, that's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. Thanks a lot for coming on my podcast today. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself, like where were you born, what was growing up like, and what essentially what have you been up to this whole time? Um, so let's see. I was born in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids. Mm -hmm. So my oldest sibling is 11 years older than me. Um, and um, I grew up as a small child in a very large house um, in Westlake, which is a suburb of, of Austin. And I think, you know, my childhood seemed pretty normal uh, up to a point. Um, I went to um, church every Sunday. We were part of the Episcopal Church. I um, played a lot on our property, which was a large kind of four-acre property with a barn. We played outside a lot. Um, and, and it, I think it all seemed pretty normal, um, up till, uh, when I was 10 years old, my father was, uh, and convicted of fraud, wire fraud, and a couple of other federal crimes. And what's wire fraud? Wire fraud is basically stealing money through, um, uh, through transfer, through like wire, through wire transfer. Mm. Um, it's fraud is like a stealing money and wire fraud is a specific, specific federal crime. Um, okay. so like, uh, there's local jurisdictional theft and then like when things cross state lines and international boundaries, they become federal crimes. Mm. So I think, I think wire fraud because it happens through a bank and is mm. in theory national or international. I think it's like a federal basically term for the crime. Mm. Um, I'm not an expert, but that was one of the crimes he was convicted of. Mm. Um, so when I was 10, my father went to prison till I was almost 17. 
Um, and that was a big shift in our my childhood. Um, I remember my early childhood being pretty happy, um, you know, I think for the most part. And, um, and then my father went to prison and of course our finances changed significantly. Um, what kind of work did he used to do? So he ran, um, uh, um, an international financing company. Mm -hmm. So the, um, idea of the company was that you would give him money and he would use that money to find you finance for your project mm -hmm. so if you wanted to build a building in russia in, yeah. in then he would find you the finance person who would pay for your building to be built I see. Okay, okay. um so his company was called form financial mm -hmm. um and you know it's hard to it's hard to get an exact uh story of what happened yeah, yeah. but by the way i should mention here that since we will be talking about some of uh, some like personal life stuff yeah. if there's anything that you share with me now that later on you don't want on the podcast just tell me and like that will be removed okay so, so yeah you don't have to worry in your head about what you're saying right now. yeah so yeah, yeah 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 that makes sense mm -hmm. um so anyway he mm -hmm. the piecing it together as an adult i would say the way i understand what happened was that he um, was trying to fund a major deal for himself and he was being conned by someone mm. and that he was conning people below him kind of in a pyramid scheme style. Mm. So if you could imagine someone in Egypt or someone in the Philippines saying, I can, if you can get me $5 million, mm. then I can make you a hundred billion dollars. I just need the money to pay for the legal fees to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. And so I think he was, having clients pay him $50,000 or $100,000 mm. and in turn using that to try to fund this major deal. And and I think in his head, he probably imagined that he was going to make so much money that he could fund all of the deals that he had conned people for. Yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of the way I've read the situation now. It's possible that he never had any intention of funding the deals, but I... Um, you know, I think that he did con people. I don't know if he had... I, I, I have the idea that he had the he got conned himself mm. and therefore planned to like pay them back when his deal came through. But anyway, he took enough people's money, I think in the millions, um, uh, that the federal government came after him and um, and my father was a very uh, rather narcissistic individual and so I think his response to the federal government investigating him was pretty aggressive. Mm. And often when you're being investigated, I think that being kind of uh, vitriolic toward the people investigating you can make it mm. more fun for them to investigate you. So yeah. I think he basically got the worst results yeah. of, of the crimes he committed was that he didn't plea, which probably would have ended up with him in with almost very little prison time. Instead, he mm. fought all the way and was very aggressive. So he ended up getting about six... Uh, six or six and a half years in prison, in federal prison. Um, and he served, I think, six or six and a half of an eight-year total sentence. Um, so anyway, so um, when that happened, our fortunes changed quite a bit, and then it was just my mother and um, myself and my two siblings that are closest in age. The other two were out of the house. Um, and um, my mother supported us through the whole time he was in prison, and we continued to go to... Um, the private school that we had been enrolled in when we had money, they put us on scholarship, which was generous of them, but 
um, the environment of the private school was pretty vicious uh, from my memory of it. Um, uh, we'll talk more about this later, but I have I was diagnosed at 29 f fully with a with a congenital myopathy, which is an inherited muscle disease. Um, and I'm the first person diagnosed with the specific one. And so um, it's hard to, luckily through both the luck of being born with a mild one and um, having been physically active my entire life, I basically don't present through normal life as having a disease. But when I was a child, it was much more obvious. And I also um, participated in, had to participate in PE class every day. Um, so um, I remember the school being tough pretty much from the beginning um, with my teach my, my PE teachers kind of bullying me about my disease um, because they didn't know I had a disease. Right. They didn't acknowledge that I had a disease. And so they would... Uh, you, you didn't know very well either at that time. Like before 29, you didn't... So I was diagnosed with a previously used term for it when I was three or four. And that mm. term was benign congenital myopathy. And it basically means the word benign means harmless, right? It doesn't mean that there's no effect of it, but it means mm. it's not necessarily progressive. It's not going to kill you. Mm. Um, and, uh, or sorry, benign, benign congenital hypotonia was the name of the uh, term when I was a child. Mm. And hypotonia basically means floppy muscles. Uh, it's a hypotonics, like kind of soft muscles, right? Mm. And so, um, so I was diagnosed, but I wasn't fully diagnosed because the technology didn't exist. The science had not advanced um, at that time. So my parents were aware, and for whatever reason, um, I'm still not quite sure of why, my school was never notified, and so I was treated as a normal child mm -hmm. through all of my years of school. And um, so early on in school, it was uh, it began to be pretty tough. And as the school years went on, the bullying kind of grew and, and involved more and more students. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, once my father had gone to prison, and we were on this scholarship, and I also was already kind of, you know, exceptional in a in a in a noticeable way in school school became very difficult and um so the years it, most of the years my father were in prison are kind of i think formative in a way in that um you know i felt like my primary purpose for those years was kind of to survive um and then i became very fixated on this concept of justice um because i felt like I probably at that point as a child couldn't emotionally cope with or deal with the con inconsistencies that I saw around me in my life. For example, in my family, uh, with my father or say mother, or at my school being bullied by 45 year old adults mm -hmm. for being disabled. And so, um, so I think I became fixated on the intellectual aspect of justice mm. that justice was important that bullies were um to be dispensed with mm. um and and not to say that i didn't ever bully anybody i think that that's one of the myths i think that spread about bullying is that there are bullies and there are the bullied but mm. i think that's not actually how it plays out i think that's a very kind of easily written tale. I think that what we often see in society is that the bullied become bullies. If they're not 
bullying at the same time they're bullied, mm -hmm. they are they become reproducers of what they've mm -hmm. seen. So, um, and we could talk more about that later. But growing up, I, I definitely became very. Uh, my goal was to become as intellectually quick as possible in order to stop the bullying that I felt was happening to me and to basically dominate, intellectually to dominate um, those that were uh, bullying me or in opposition to me in some way. Um, but with that, I also became fixated on the concept of justice. Mm. So fortunately for me, I left the school I was in and transferred to a public separate high school. And um, the world kind of opened up quite a bit. Uh, at that point, I found that people were generally nice to me. Um, it was kind of my world to make. Um, I had friends, you know, really for the first time beyond the couple of friends I'd had in my uh, younger years. And um, I was social. Um, I found that I was I was actually liked by some people and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so those years were an interesting year because both... My worldview was expanding. I was enjoying a lot more. Um, but I also had, you know, all of these coping mechanisms and ideas from my younger, uh, from my childhood. Um, and one of the things that uh, happened as a result of, um, of enjoying social, I think both um, as a reaction to the environment in which I found myself for, for several years, and as a result of finding social connection, I basically stopped uh, making a great effort to attend classes or to succeed in them or to learn in them. Um, and so high school was a, an interesting time because my social life took total um, priority mm -hmm. and any learning took a back seat. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the things I liked most about my high school is that all of my learning was kind of experiential, uh, mm -hmm. kind of, kind of, social and street learning for about four years yeah. um, as opposed to what had been an entirely intellectual mm. kind of path prior. Um, so it feels like this very sharp divide in my life. And so um, so for those four years, I, I had this basically different focus. And then um, that allowed me to learn some social graces and some uh, become kind of more uh, adept at certain social situations whereas I think being more lonely and isolated in my younger years I had I had really fixated on the intellectual components mm -hmm. of interactions um, but um, thankfully um, once I finished high school I realized I should probably consider learning again and go to college and so I um, I had I had uh, I had done two things one I had um, I had uh, barely learned anything in high school. So fortunately, I was um, equipped enough by the time I left middle school to go to college. <laughs> um, but in addition to that, I, um, I had lied to finish high school um, and barely finished high school. Um, and I'd finished in the bottom quarter of my graduating class of 600 and I think even low in the bottom quarter yeah. so um, well, what, what do you mean you lied to finish well so I um, got um, when I was 16 I was diagnosed with or I had mononucleosis for a very long period for about three months 
and then I had following uh, following the mononucleosis, I had like a compromised immune system for about a year following. So it was very hard to attend school. What is mononucleosis? Mononucleosis is called the kissing uh, disease. It's a mm-hmm. it's a bacterial infection, I, I believe, uh, uh, or sorry, a virus um, that that makes people very weak and sick and faint. Mm. And many people get it for a week or two, mm. but it has this this um, risk of uh, basically kind of cascading into a much larger attack mm. on the immune system. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't particularly healthy. I hadn't grown up eating very healthy. Mm. I had been overweight as a child. I was also not sleeping very much because uh, I was social and I was smoking cigarettes by that time in my life, which I started doing at 15. So I think the combination of those things probably caused it to last quite a bit longer than it needed to. Um, and some people have effects for many years after, and I was lucky not to get those effects. But um, nobody believed that I was sick, um, and, and, you know, including my family. So um, none of my absences were excused, and I effectively missed an entire semester of high school, so I failed all of my classes. Mm. And so in order to graduate on time, I was going to have to do this incredible load of classes to finish, right? But fortunately, they had a thing called work program where you could go to work outside of school and um, you could get credit for it and it would count for several credits. And so I um, I managed, after my father came back from prison, I managed to do some work for him, Mm. but greatly exaggerate the number of hours that I did and get these credits, which allowed me to graduate on time. So, you know, I fortunately was able to trick my way into a high school <laughs> diploma because I, I think at that point in my life, I can't imagine having had the foresight to do enough work to actually graduate if I had been forced to follow a traditional curriculum. I think my anxiety had gotten so bad um, as a result of the mononucleosis and other you know factors in my life that... Um, I was lucky enough to be in a position to lie and graduate. So I graduated, and then college uh, was coming around. Mm. So it seems like the early part of high school was kind of mostly a positive, like, expansion of your role, like, yeah. more social stuff. And then towards the end, it, like, it wasn't that great anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah, okay. And I think it's one of those questions debating now as life has gone on of, was it just that the chickens were coming home to roost that all of this thing that I had been able to stuff down for a year or two as my world expanded, mm. all bubbling through and affecting all of my interpersonal relationships and my ability to um, remain kind of anxiety free and depression free, or was, you know, this a result of being sick? And that's a, that's a tough one. But I think generally, yes, I think that it's likely that things bubbled through and I had no way to cope with them. Mm. Um, especially in the presence of now having much more social connection and, you know, more responsibility as I got older. But um, I was fortunate enough to where I was able to get into the University of Texas at San Antonio uh, without being, they they accept a much larger percentage of applicants than the University of Texas at Austin, so I was fortunate to get into there. Mm-hmm. And then I made a perfect GPA, so I was able to transfer into UT Austin. Shit, like four? Yeah. Oh. Um, which I don't know if it's like much of a feat at University of Texas San Antonio, but it sounds like a pretty big feat. Yeah. Um, but I was fortunate enough to where I was able to like rally in yeah. one year. Yeah. Basically, I was able to not concern myself with education at all for four years, and then I was able to rally in one year and transition. Mm-hmm. 
um, into um, this uh, the the bigger state university at yeah. UT Austin. Um, but I think also that the big question came up when I got into college of I had made friends with a lot of people that resembled myself in their kind of parenting status. So if I looked around in high school, I found that I basically ran with a bunch of orphans and kind of misfits in a way. Um, you know, it was alarming if I actually counted all my friends, how many of them had either a dead parent mm. or a parent that lived elsewhere or a parent that had like, you know, seemed rather, rather neglectful or even mm. abusive or, um, you know, or absent in some way, mm. either emotionally or physically. Do you think that's just, uh, it was just this revelation that this, this was a more common occurrence in, in, in Texas than you had anticipated or that you were subconsciously selecting for certain personalities as your friends? You know, I think, it would, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, to give you a, an example, um, I was in a, cl- a class of about 550, I think, 530 students mm-hmm. in my grade alone. Mm-hmm. And I ended up befriending, seeking out and befriending, I mean, not for this reason, but ended up becoming close friends with the only other person with a parent in prison out of 530 or 50 people. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, ended up kind of naturally congealing with... Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you, did you know this fact about them at the beginning of your friendship or did it emerge later? Uh, it emerged rather quickly, maybe the second or third time we hung out. I so I think there's some some active selection. Mm. I think there's also some subconscious selection. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's really interesting. I mean, it wasn't just myself. It was this group was also friends with each other, right? Mm. And so, but if you looked around, you know, a parent was absent, a parent was neglectful, a parent was missing. Mm. Two parents were absent. You know I mean? This was a... Uh, an interesting group and and you know and one of the the downsides to this kind of group the upside being that I created a family outside of my home in mm-hmm. which I didn't really feel any bond or connection of any sort um, and so it was this incredibly helpful thing to have a bond and connection outside of the home to take the space of family but the downside is when you get a group of people together, especially young people who are either neglected or abused or have been neglected or abused. The, the, the downside of that is, right, is that the behavior is very rarely purely positive, right? I mean, you're talking about um, drug use and, 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 and kind of criminal activity and reactions to events that can compromise the future of your life based on the way you've you've normalized certain things. Um, So, you know, we, uh, you know, we were around a lot of drugs and did quite a bit of drugs and people dealt quite a bit of drugs. And then in addition to that, we destroyed a lot of property and kind of were rather deviant, right, Mm -hmm. as a group. Um, Mm -hmm. And fortunately for myself, I I faced very little. I, I was arrested one time and I ended up being able to get the charges dismissed, but I was able to make it to college without, children or drug addictions or you know criminal records right mm. and, and 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 some percentage of my friends were also able to do the same thing but for another group of them they either developed a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction they developed uh, or they they became arrested they were arrested two or three times by the end of high school and had and had you know issues with probation and and jail, or you know also they had a kid. You know and these are all options with that kind of behavior. And I think 
um, I was very lucky, um, along with some other friends, to make it to adulthood without any of these serious uh, weights bringing us down. I think it's hard enough growing up to succeed with starting in the negative um, without, um, without some luck and some kind of genetically inherited resilience and some intelligence. And I think that's the thing I think about, you know, now is regarding justice work too, is that if you're born into this world with a high enough IQ that's then stimulated correctly, um, you can, and you don't get, and you don't have a child at 15 and you don't develop a drug addiction and you don't, um, you know, or you're able to overcome a drug addiction, um, that you can survive quite a bit of, um, quite a few traumatic experiences and that you are naturally predisposed to better survive than others. Mm. Um, and that's something that we should count. You know, we should be consider ourselves the ones of us that get these graces or these, these, uh, um, these realities should consider ourselves very fortunate. So, um, so I enrolled in college and, um, and, um, I had also been lucky to make some friends that, although somewhat misfits, were also incredibly intelligent, and some that were far more intelligent than I was, that I was able to look up to and kind of grow with. Um, and so I transferred to the University of Texas at Austin, and I had started studying. I, I began studying uh, mechanical engineering. My father studied um, aerospace engineering, and so... I thought that I should follow in his footsteps being an engineer, but I realized very quickly I hated engineering mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I didn't enjoy math or science particularly. I mean, I enjoyed it, but not from a classroom learning perspective. And so I transferred into history and I started studying history. Mm. Um, and you, you just said, so you transferred into history, but was this because you actually liked history among all the other stuff that you were um, studying besides engineering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was lucky. Um, I was tr- I transferred in my junior year of high school into a self-paced um, uh, high school dropout prevention program that was hosted by my public school mm-hmm. on a separate campus across the street. It was for, yeah, it was for basically the people that they, they it was a very wealthy school district and they couldn't really have people dropping out. Mm-hmm. So it was this very, I mean, very heroic effort for the amount they spent for each student I mean to try to prevent anyone from being the dropout Um, and the neat part was we were able to do our classes at our own speed and I encountered this really wonderful history teacher at the time uh, who taught history from the present to the past he thought that the present history is what matters to people I mean young people they they connect with the history 10 years before they were in this room more than they connect with uh, you know, uh, uh, the ancient Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And so he kind of taught like American history from the present all the way to the beginnings of American history. And I really enjoyed history with him. I had never really mm-hmm. been, you know, so wowed by a subject as history. And so I, I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning it. I enjoyed the theories behind it. And so I decided I'd study history in college as a result. Um, and then a year after I transferred in the University of Texas, I started studying Arabic. And um, it was kind of a defining moment for me because I had, 
avoided really difficult things for myself. I mean, I had worked hard in college, um, but if something was terribly hard, it kind of frustrated me. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really develop um, great studying habits in high school because I never studied. And so all of these things I had to develop in my, you know, starting at in almost 19. Um, so it was the first class that I signed up for that was really difficult um, um, that I had to put a ton of work into. And I had been fortunate before that that I had kind of naturally uh, done well in other classes. I had worked, but I had also been pretty inclined to the class. Why did you pick Arabic of, of all things? Um, I think it just sounded kind of odd and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, my best friend from childhood's father was from Lebanon. And I had two close friends in high school, one whose parents are Lebanese and the other whose father's from Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of had this like, oh, Arabic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds kind of odd. It's kind of out there. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't know is that when I, my first day in Arabic class at the University of Texas, I was sitting in the room with one of three authors of the textbook that is used to teach Arabic or to English speakers all over the English speaking world. And that I had, and that I had stumbled into the greatest Arabic program for English speakers in the world, at the University of Texas, and I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, I, I thought, but and she said on the first day, you know, this is going to be three to five hours of homework a night for the first month. Following that, it could be it'll be two to four, for the rest of the time you're in our program. And if you can't do that and commit to that, get out, leave now. Mm. We don't help people along like more than coming to office hours. We don't carry dead weight, basically. So if you can't wake up at, if you can't be here at eight o'clock in the morning and you can't commit to four, like three to five hours a night, you should leave before you fail. And I thought, oh my God. And then I thought, no one's telling me to, no one, I'll never accept that. Like I'm not leaving. Mm. And so I committed myself to really, really, really pushing and doing well in Arabic. And it was a great feeling. And, and at the same time as I was beginning to study Arabic and I was really kind of blossoming, um, I think in this in this academic environment, um, I was starting to think more politically. I was take I had taken my first uh, kind of politically radicalizing radicalizing class, which was um, African American culture, um, with a wonderful professor at UT, and and after that I had started reading, and then I took a class on Black Power movements. And I had begun taking classes on Latin American leftist revolutions. Um, and with all of this combined, I became very, um, I think with my um, already kind of focus on justice, my already kind of obsessive idea of justice is that, you know, if I would see someone like what I felt like was bullying someone or, or, or using their position of authority on against someone, I would become kind of uh, very angry. Mm-hmm. And so taking these classes and learning about the black experience in America and the history of the black experience, I mean, legally and the reality of it both, Mm. right? By the way, have you heard of the Stanford prison experiment? Is this the one where they, uh, like, press the button or they, like... No, no, no. uh, I think that's called the Stanley Milgram experiment. Okay. So the Stanford prison experiment, uh, they... uh, they picked students for a psychology experiment and then uh-huh. they randomly assigned them to be either fake 
prison inmates yeah. or guards. Yeah. And part of the a campus building was made into a kind of makeshift fake prison. Yeah. And then no explicit uh, instructions were given to the guards yeah. about how to treat the prisoners. Uh, there were only like, some very basic rules about, you know, just have them assemble in the beginning of the day and like, uh, um, you know, make sure everyone is there. Um, and then the rest of the rules are free for you guys to design. Okay. And very soon what started happening was kind of the very asymmetric power dynamic that you would see in a real prison. Mm-hmm. Although there was no actual instructions from the experimenters to the students to act this way. Huh. And the whole thing became so intense that students tried, the prisoner students tried escaping like a couple of them ended up in a hospital from like major uh, trauma, whatever. So they wanted to do this kind of a long experiment for, I think, several weeks or something. And then they had to end very, very quickly. Because it went so poorly. Yeah. Wow. But uh, yeah, I was just kind of this, this it just kind of remind what you were talking about just reminded me of. So there, there were several like interesting reports that came out of it, nevertheless. Um, yeah. which kind of commented on like you know the the kind of the, the evil that we see in humans and greatly asymmetric power structures we sometimes think it arose out of a political system that made people uh, act that way but uh, is that really true is there the capacity within humans yeah. uh, to just act in evil ways towards other people sh- should we get the chance yeah um and so anyway well never That's, mind it's just no but i mean yeah. that, like what's the the hunter rent quote the banality of evil yeah regarding yeah. the holocaust yeah, yeah yeah um yeah i mean i i think about um mm. you know a good example is i had this principal in middle school mm. and um you know it was interesting because i mean i it, you know as a child even it seemed like power was what he really liked right i mean you know you know he had this very moral positioning he took on subjects but he didn't really seem to be you know he he was he acted very religiously pious but he really also acted very superior and that was one of the interesting things it seemed like i was you know looking at an individual who was um really i mean he was an odd person right he he wasn't exactly hyper masculine um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't come off as remarkably intelligent either. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you have this, this, um, this development where I think most people can be, um, encouraged to do evil things, mm. um, either by, I mean, I think that there's this idea that most of us hold on to that we are the exceptions, that when asked to um, close the doors to a gas chamber, we would say, no, I'll die instead. Mm-hmm. And yet what we find is that most people won't, right? Mm-hmm. Most people, there are very few people in this world who will um, die as opposed to killing mm-hmm. um, or who will risk their lives mm-hmm. and sacrifice their lives, knowing, again, that their lives will end for something greater, mm-hmm. Um and, you know, our movies are filled with these heroes, right? And yet when the time actually comes, I think part of it is that many of the decisions that are evil are actually rather mundane, mm. right? Is it, 
you know, no one walks up to a, a German in 1932 and says, in 10 years, how would you like to be operating a gas chamber killing this many people? There are thousands and millions of decisions, right, and conversations and political reality shaped before that person is standing in that mm. position. And so it's not that they've taken a major step. It's they're taking one more minor step on the mm. path to doing what they're told to do, which is right, mm. for whatever reason they've concocted. And we see it in war. I mean, we see we see veterans come back from Iraq who've killed children. Mm. And at the moment, at the time that child was killed, right, that whatever rationale had led them mm. all the way to holding that gun in Baghdad, right, also now leads them to killing that child. Mm. Um, and it's not it's not the major decision they didn't say at 17 I can't wait to kill children mm. they said I saw this immediate threat in this immediate environment yeah. right or they had 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 been indoctrinated enough to believe that Iraqis weren't human mm. and therefore at the moment they kill that child they're not actually killing a person that is equal to them mm. they're killing some kind of human infestation mm -hmm. that is the masquerading as people right mm. um, and I think that I remember my strongest example of that being this principle is that um, both he really created an environment of like kind of what felt like uh, he enjoyed having a, a, a power over children. He also enjoyed having kind of a, it felt like, you know, an environment of terror, right? That he, that he maintained in some ways over me and over some of the other students. Um, he really enjoyed authority, uh, using it and abusing it. But it, but I mean, you asked him, you know, if you asked him his ethics, he would probably share similar ethics to like we might in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. It was like he made these minor decisions. Um, and then what followed was all of the subordinates that were under him, right? Basically followed the lead of this slightly sadistic mm -hmm. man, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's interesting growing up, I remember I had this my best childhood friend his mother was you know one of the really clear lights in my life and unfortunately she passed away a little over a year ago yeah. but she actually somehow you know no matter what fray was happening kind of always held on to this idea of of justice um i remember she she grew up in a she grew up in a a, a, a jewish family in new york and talked about when she was a professor at the university of texas during the Intifada, the first Intifada, um, someone was raising money for, I think it was the first Intifada, someone was, in Palestine, someone was raising money for Jewish children, for Israeli Jewish children. So she passed around a hat for Palestinian children. And, um, and she was reported for being anti-Semitic, and they didn't know that she was Jewish because she was using her husband's last name, which is Mamasani at the time, I believe. And her dean was kind enough to laugh the student out of the office. Um, but she, she would say things like, when we have the, the, we have a responsibility to speak up on behalf of people that can't speak up if we have the ability to do so. Mm. The ability also, with, with ability follows responsibility. And so um, she was always a wonderful light. And with this principle, she would say things to me like, the greatest revenge uh, against a man like that, against a small man like that, is to live a successful and wonderful life. Yeah. And so um, I think, you know, some of her influences and then seeing this environment, seeing the way people acted when put in situations socially, when they felt pressured to be normal or pressured to do what was 
what was acceptable. Um, I became very fixated on this idea of justice, and 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 then I began to study Arabic, and um, I already knew a little bit about Palestine through my friends that I grew up with, and so I decided to start working in this organization called the Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, and you know, there's two aspects. One, I felt like the work we were doing was good because we were fighting on the side of what I felt like was right, which was liberation for Palestinians, self determination for Palestinians. And in addition to that, we I also made this incredible group of friends who I felt like were a moral force. Mm. They were all kind of turning against what was normal. Thank you for visiting the Room of Lives. In the next part, our conversation continues on to the different kinds of social activism that Pace involved himself in during his undergraduate days, including getting arrested for protesting sweatshops and traveling to Palestine for the Solidarity Movement.